the last couple of weeks I've been thinking about Jesus raising Lazarus from the grave, that marvelous account of God's resurrection power. You'll remember that (coughs) Lazarus had been dead for four days. He was so dead that when Jesus approached the tomb and asked that it be unsealed and open, Lazarus' sister cried out in horror, Lord, by this time there'll be a stench. In other words, he's too dead to even be bothered with. But Jesus came and demanded that in spite of her protest, the grave be open. He spoke the words, Lazarus, come forth, and Lazarus rose from the grave and walked out. And when he came out where everyone could see him, the text says that he still had the grave clothes on him. The grave clothes were those long strips of cloth that were used to wrap the body. Lazarus was bound hand and foot with the wrappings, and his face was wrapped around with the cloth. And Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. Let him loose so he can go. The idea is to free him so he could go on living his life. This is a good analogy for what Paul is writing about in our text in Romans chapter 6. There seem to be so many people who have been lifted out of the darkness, out of the deadness of being separated from God who have been redeemed and that they still have their grave clothes on. And the Lord Jesus would say to them, get off your grave clothes, be loosed, be free. Like Lazarus, we need to shed the grave clothes of the old man. Having been crucified with Christ, we who have been raised from the dead to walk in newness of life, if anyone is a new creation, the old has passed away, the new has come, we need to get rid of that which remains of our deadness. Now we've learned in Romans chapter 6 that as believers in Christ we have died and risen again. Remember that? Romans chapter 6 verse 4. If you want to look back up at the fourth verse. Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father we too might walk in newness of life. Now we're going to learn in verses 11 through 14 of Romans 6, that having been raised from the dead and having experienced in our position victory over death as to its penalty and its power and victory over sin as to its penalty and power, we are now ready to move on, to take off the grave clothes and live in the fullness of life. But you probably know from experience that that's not an easy thing to do. Getting saved didn't automatically free you from all the temptations and all the struggles and all the habits that try to prevent you from living a holy life. So how do we get off the grave clothes? How do we really strip ourselves clean? How do we, as Peter put it in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 1, lay aside the old, put it off? How do we put off that which shouldn't be in our lives? And how do we put on that which should be there? You know, really, this is the normal Christian life. The normal Christian life is one of putting off or laying aside the old self and putting on the new self. Colossians chapter 3, verse 9 says, Since you have laid aside the old self with its evil practices, lay aside the old self, and since you have put on the new self, 
who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him, since our new self is being renewed into the image of Jesus Christ, we are to put on. Now put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Lay aside the old self, put on the new self. This is the normal Christian life. If we want it in very practical terms, how do we overcome sin in our lives? How do we walk in the newness of life that God has for us? In order to put off or lay aside the old self and put on the new self, in Romans chapter 6, Paul tells us three things. He tells us what we need to know, what we need to consider, and what we need to present. First of all, what do we need to know? Now, this is a review of what we learned so far in Romans chapter 6, but it's, it's so important that we get this. So we're going to look at it very carefully again, because if we don't get this, we don't get anything. Look at the sixth chapter of Romans, the sixth verse. Here Paul tells us what we need to know. Verse 6, knowing this, this is what we need to know, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. Paul's saying you need to know this. That your old self, the old man has been crucified with Christ. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who gave himself for me. It says we're dead and buried so that the body of sin might be, as it says here in verse 6, done away with. Now the Greek word translated done away with is katargeo, that this body of sin might be done away with. Done away with is not the best translation here. Katargeo means to render inoperative, to nullify, to, to make it null and void. Now some of the translations say the body of sin was destroyed. Now both destroy and done away with is probably a bad selection of terms because it gives us the idea that maybe the sin nature has been totally eradicated. Now, cardigeo has been used by some to teach the eradication, eradication of the sin nature. And in other words, if people say, well, after you become a Christian, you, you really never sin again after you're saved. That, that it really doesn't make any difference how you live. Now you just make mistakes, but they're different. It's not really sin, or sin no longer really matters. Now, the term kardageo occurs 27 times in the New Testament, but uh, just in its usage in Romans would help us get a better feeling for what Paul means like this. This, this is important to get, so stay with me here. For in Romans chapter 3, verse 3, Romans 3, 3, you don't need to turn to it unless you're really fast because we're going to read quite a few of these now, but just listen to what Paul is saying. In Romans 3, chapter 3, he's speaking of the apostasy of Israel. And he says, What then? If some did not believe, their belief will not nullify, there's our word, cartageo, nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? Cartageo is the word nullify there. It couldn't mean destroyed or done away with because nothing could do away with or destroy the faith of God. Again, having presented the magnificent case later in chapter 3 for the doctrine of grace, Paul says in chapter 3, verse 31, 
Do we then nullify the law through faith? May it never be. On the contrary, we establish the law. Again, it's better translated nullify. Do we, it can't be translated, do we destroy the law? Because the law can't be destroyed. The law is eternal and not to be destroyed by any man. Uh, Romans chapter 4, verse 14. It says, For those who are of the law are heirs, faith for if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise is nullified. Of course, the promise of God can never be destroyed, just nullified. And better, in those passages I just read you, it means of, of none effect. It has no effect. And the idea is that the body of sin is nullified. It, it loses its dominance. It loses its control. It's of no effect. And Paul gives us an illustration of this in chapter 7 of Romans, verse 2. 7th chapter of the second verse. He says, For the married woman is bound by the law to her husband while he is living, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning her husband. That word released, again, that's the same word, cardigeo. If the husband is dead, she is released. It doesn't mean she's destroyed. It means she's free from the dominance of that husband. Why? He's dead. Now, that sounds kind of harsh, but he's dead. She's free from his dominance. Now, cardigeo means then, according to Thayer, to render idle, inactive, inoperative, to deprive it of, its, of its strength, to make of none effect, that's really the best translation here, to deprive of force, influence, or power to bring to naught. What it is saying here that the body of sin, this body of sin in which we live, in which our being is, is deprived of its dominant power. It's deprived of its controlling power. I like the way J.B. Phillips translated Romans 6.6. 6. He gives the thought and the intent of the verse. He says, Never, or let us never forget that our old selves died with him on the cross and the tyranny of sin over us might be broken. What do we need to know? To put off and put on. Know this, therefore, that we are no longer slaves to sin. We're freed from sin as believers. Sin and death make no more claim on the believer in Jesus Christ. And not only is the penalty paid, but the power of sin is broken as well. And sin has no more dominion over the believer. We now live in a new life. We are a new creation, a new man, a new nature. We're not what we used to be. Chapter 6 of Romans ended, you might remember, from verse 12 on, telling us basically what we were in Adam. And when we were in Adam, all died. But when we come to Christ, in Him we're all made alive. So it is that the whole human race can be identified as being either in Adam or in Christ. If they are in Adam, when Adam sinned, they all sinned. When Adam died, they all died. And if we by faith in Christ are by faith in Christ, when Christ dies, we die. When He rises, we rise. And so to begin with, we want to know that this is true. If we are to live out the fullness of the new life in Christ, if we are to really live as new creations, then it begins with the knowledge of the fact that I'm not what I used to be. 
I am new. And I have to know that to begin with. And what is the essence of that newness? I am no longer under the tyranny of sin. Sin is no longer my absolute master. I need to know that. I don't obey sin. It's a basic principle of the Word of God that people, first of all, have to know what's true. We read back in the book of Hosea, the prophet, when he said of the people of God that they were destroyed because of a lack of knowledge. Not a lack of dedication, not a lack of consecration, not a lack of commitment, not even a lack of worship activity, not even a lack of religion, a lack of revelation, but what? They were destroyed for a lack of knowledge. They didn't know so they couldn't function. And they were destroyed. You'll never be able to live out what you don't know. In that very special indictment of Isaiah in chapter 1, Isaiah sums up his indictment of God's people and says, Israel does not know. They don't know. And if you look in the New Testament, you find the same thing. In fact, in Philippians 4, verse 8, Paul writes, Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. Literally, let your mind dwell on these things. Count on what you know to be true. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 8, Paul writes some very practical things for us. He talks about putting off anger and wrath and putting off malice and blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another. And since you have put off the old man with his deeds, the old man is put off, and you have been put on the new man, which he says is renewed in what? Knowledge. Renewed in knowledge. The new man is renewed in knowledge. You can't function in what you don't know. And so we begin by knowing. And why do we know? The power of sin to tyrannize us has been broken. We know that we do not have to be prey to sin's power. We know that we do not have to fall victim to it. We are not victims of our past. We know for certain that sin's power cannot force us to do that which is against God. Now once you know that, you're on your way to victory. Because it puts confidence in your heart. You know you're not a victim anymore. You're not being victimized. The doubt is gone. The fear is gone. You know you are dealing with a vanquished foe. And you know you are dealing with a monarch who has been dethroned. The tomb is really open. And we've really come out of the grave. And we can get off the grave clothes and get on with the victory. So it all begins with knowing. To lay aside the old man and put on the know or the new, you have to, to know. Now that was a long review of what we've covered already, but uh, we can't act on what we don't know. So that's why it's so important. Secondly, Paul tells us what we need to consider. What we need to consider. First he says we need to know. The second word is consider. Verse 11 of Romans chapter 6. 11th verse. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now the word know deals with the mind. What I know in my mind, the word consider deals with the heart. What I believe in my heart. 
You know it to be so intellectually, and now you believe it to be so. You consider, or as some translations say it, you reckon it to be so. What does it mean to reckon or to consider? The Greek word is logizomai. Now, the word has many translation possibilities. It's used of a mathematical kind of expression. In its literal sense, it means to number something, to count something, to account something, or to estimate something. But it's also used in a figurative way. Basically, it's translated in Romans to impute or to put to someone's account, to credit righteousness to one's account, where the Lord says that in salvation, God puts to our account or reckons to our account righteousness. But it also can be used in a figurative sense to refer to calculating in the mind or reasoning in the mind, affirming in the mind that something is so, and that's the way it's used here. We would say we have calculated it in our minds, run the numbers as it were. We think it to be true. We affirm it to be true. First you know and now you affirm that it's true or conclude that it's true. Or if you want to put it in the category of the genuine Christian term that's all-encompassing, you believe that it's true. You believe it in your heart, a heart faith. You know that it's true because the data says it is. Now you believe it with a heart belief. You come to that settled confidence of faith. Now at this point, quoting John MacArthur, he, he says, somebody might wonder about all of this. And he says, somebody might say, well, you know, this is hard. It's hard for me to believe that I'm a person who no longer possesses a sin nature. It's hard for me to believe that I am a person who no longer is a victim of the old man. It's hard for me to believe that I have died and nevertheless I live and yet not I but Christ who lives in me. It's hard for me to believe that I possess the divine nature. It's hard for me to believe that planted within me is an incorruptible seed. It's hard for me to believe that I'm a new creation and behold all things are new. Now the reason it's hard to believe is in verse 12 of Romans chapter 6. Two words about us make it hard to believe. The two words are mortal body. You still have a mortal body. Verse 12, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lust. That is, you obey the lust of the flesh. The, the mortal body is your human body of flesh with all its lust, with, with all its propensity and desire towards sin. And the word flesh is used in more than one way in Scripture. Sometimes it refers just to the physical body. But in other passages, it refers to what Paul calls the law of sin, which is in my members. We see this over in Romans chapter 7, the 7th chapter of Romans, the 22nd verse. Here's that, that uh, almost famous chapter, that, that section that Paul has been talking about the principle of evil that is present in him. And even though he's a believer, so he does what he doesn't want to do, and he, 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 he does, doesn't do what he wants to do. He does, what he, <laughs> he does what he doesn't want to do, and he doesn't do what he wants to do. Verse 22 of Romans chapter 7. And he says, For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man 
But I see a different law in the, the members of my body waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Who will set me free from the flesh with all its lust and propensity towards sin? Well, to help you understand this, let me see if I can illustrate it. In Victor Hugo's, Hugo's story 93, the crew members of a ship are being tossed in a violent storm and they're more terrified by a crashing sound down below than the, the storm itself. They know that it's the sound of a cannon that is torn loose and it's crashing into the sides of the ship with each brutal wave. And so two men risk their lives to go below and fasten the cannon before it breaks through and sends the ship to the bottom of the sea. In our mortal bodies, we are like that ship. Our souls are more empowered or imperiled by the inward power of sin that's crashing and going this way and that way and threatening to take us out. We're more imperiled by that than the outer storms of the world and the devil. The storms of life and the temptation of this world are not our greatest peril because of the biblical stress on personal accountability. This indwelling law of sin, as Paul calls it, is the primary battleground of spiritual warfare. You know, when we talk about spiritual warfare and temptation, we like to talk about the outer struggles that wage war against us and the fiery arrows of the devil and about the temptations of the world, but the, the fiery arrows, arrows of the evil one, the temptations of the world are aimed directly at the flesh, the members of our body. On our deepest spiritual level, we are new creations who are alive to God because of our salvation in Jesus Christ, but on a, the soulish and physical levels, we still await the fullness of our redemption, the redemption of our bodies when we receive our glorified bodies resurrected in the likeness of Christ. But until at that time, the law of sin, the old appetites, the attitudes, the memories, the habits can surface at any time and wage war against the life of Christ in us. The law of the members of my body wages war. The conflict is inward versus outward. That is, it's between the Holy Spirit who indwells our spirit and our flesh. You know, Paul is fond of saying, Lo, I tell you a mystery, where he reveals something that hasn't been revealed before. Well, I'm going to tell you a mystery. Let me tell you this. This conflict this body of sin waging war against us does not diminish with conversion when we are saved, but it becomes more and more intense as we pursue the Spirit-directed and the Spirit-empowered life. The conflict is more intense the more we mature in Christ. But here's the cool part. Here's the good news. Because of our union with Christ in his death and resurrection, we can approach the spiritual warfare from a position of victory. It is true, as Romans 7 tells us, that the flesh or power of sin is still with us, but it need no longer have dominion over our lives. 
once we have grasped this, once we know it and we believe it is true, that our old life has ended with the score settled, the debt paid, the law satisfied, we will want to have nothing more to do with it. You know, as believers in Jesus Christ, the biography of our lives is divided into two halves. Two volumes, we could say. First, we were in Adam. Now we are in Christ. Volume 1 ended with the judicial death of our former self. You were crucified with Christ. Volume 2 opened with your resurrection. You were raised with Christ to walk in newness of life. You must remember these facts about yourself. You have to keep reminding yourself. Volume 1 is long closed. I'm now living in Volume 2. It is inconceivable that I should reopen Volume 1 as if my death and resurrection with Christ had never taken place. And I like the way that John Stott poised this with some questions. He asked, Can a married woman live as though she were still single? Well, I, yes, I suppose she could. It's not impossible. But then he says, Let her remember who she is. Let her feel her wedding ring the symbol of her new life of union with her husband, and she will want to live accordingly. Then Stott asks, Can born-again Christians live as though they're still in their sins? Well, yes, I suppose they could, at least for a while. It's not impossible. But let them remember who they are. Let them recall their baptism, the symbol of their new life of union with Christ, so that they will want to live accordingly. You know, it's important to follow Jesus Christ once you receive Him as Savior, to follow Him and obey Him by going through the waters of baptism, that beautiful symbol of our, our, our death with Christ and our burial with Him and walking in newness, being raised to newness of life because it's like our wedding ring. We look back at that point and we can say, that was the time that I gave my life to Christ and started walking in newness of life. So the major secret of holy living is in your mind. It's all in your mind. <laughs> it is knowing that our former self was crucified with Christ and knowing that baptism into Christ is baptism into his death and resurrection and considering that through Christ we are dead to sin and alive to God. We are to recall, to ponder, to grasp, to, to register these truths until they are so integral in our mindset that a return to the old life is unthinkable. Regenerate Christians should no more contemplate a return to unregenerate living than, than adults going back to their childhood or married people going to their singleness or discharged prisoners to their prison cell. For our union with Jesus Christ has released us, severed us from the old life, and committed us to the new. Our baptism into Christ stands between the two like a door between two rooms, closing on the one and opening on the other. We have died and we have risen. How can we possibly live again in what we have died to? We must therefore present ourselves to God. Verse 12 of Romans chapter 6. Our knowing and our belief should lead to actions. Verse 12. 
Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lust. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Whereas knowing has to do with the mind, consider has to do with the heart, present has to do with the will. It's an act of the will. We only have time to touch on this because we're going to see it quite a bit more as we go through this chapter. But Paul has appealed to the mind, he's appealed to the heart, and now he appeals to the will. Basically saying, stop sinning and start obeying. But this appeal to the will rests on the knowledge of who you are in Christ and believing that truth when you face temptation. Then you must act on it. So three very brief thoughts related to this as we close, and then we'll, we're going to spend really two and a half more chapters in Romans on this very thought. First of all, we have an active responsibility to stop the reign of sin. We have an active responsibility to stop the reign of sins in our lives. It's an act of our will. Paul directs the command to us, and he doesn't just say, well, just let go and let God... <laughs> Rather, he says, stop sinning. You must take aggressive action to deny its attempt to rule your life. You know, this is where just say no is a, a valid motto. Stop it. Stop it. You can obey that command because in Christ the power of sin has been broken. Isn't that what Paul is telling us when he says, flee immorality, flee from idolatry, free from useful lust, Fleeing is the opposite of hanging out with sin, let alone welcoming in your life. It's get out of it. Get away from it. If certain movies defile you and put tempting thoughts in your brain, flee from those movies. Flee from whatever it is that the body of sin uses to wage war against you. This isn't rocket science. Cut it out. Stop it. And the second thought is this. Victory over sin begins by personally giving yourself to God. Present yourself to God. Verse 13 says, present yourself to God as instruments of his righteousness. Literally, it says, present yourself to God as weapons of his righteousness. Weapons. This is war, folks. This is weapons. And this implies that our main reason for wanting to overcome sin should not be just our own happiness, but rather the glory of God who sent His Son to redeem us. He bought us with His blood, therefore we must glorify Him with our bodies. We now present ourselves to God as willing conscripts in His army, as weapons of warfare for God's purpose, for God's glory. And we will be happy when we give ourselves to God, but our primary aim is to glorify Him. The motive, your motive for gaining the victory over sin should be to please the loving Lord who bought you with His blood. Give your bodily members to Him as weapons for righteousness. And the third thought is this. Victory over sin is only possible for those who are spiritually alive from the dead. Another way to put it, victory over sin is only possible for those who have been redeemed in Jesus Christ, those who are saved. Into verse 13, Paul says, present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead. 
You were dead in your sins, alienated from God as an enemy, but he made you alive in Christ through the new birth. You know, even unbelievers can become more outwardly moral by self-effort. But as someone said, it's like putting a tuxedo on a pig. Last election cycle, they talked a lot about putting lipstick on a pig. Well, this is putting a tuxedo on a pig. It, it might look for a while, or might nice for a while. You, you might even take a picture of the pig in tuxedo, put it on Facebook. It's cute for a while, but you haven't changed the pig's nature. The first mud hole that it sees will be too tempting. To overcome the temptation, that pig needs a brand new nature. To overcome temptation on the heart level so it doesn't work its way out through the bodily members, you must be alive from the dead through faith in Christ. But know this, having received Christ, you were crucified with him. You became a new you, a new creation. The Holy Spirit came to indwell you. He lives on the inside of you. He gives you the ability to walk in a new kind of life. Know this. Then consider this as true. This is who you are. This is how you can live. This is how you defeat sin. And present yourself to God as an act of will, as a weapon of his righteousness. In Christ, God gives us identity. He gives us ability. He gives us purpose. And the Holy Spirit transforms our minds, our hearts, and our will to be in conformity with who we are in Jesus Christ.